0: Because of Jesus, we can live. Desiree, good job. This man out here was giving you googly eyes, though. That man in the red shirt right there. Hey, listen, I'm glad you're here. And uh, we're preaching a series right now called Worldview and Focus. And we're trying to answer um, the big questions about life. And everybody in the world answers these questions, but the way they answer them is determined by their worldview. In other words, the lenses through which they see the world and understand and interpret the world. And so we've taken on big questions like, what is truth? Is there truth? Is it your truth, my truth? Or is it the truth? And we declared it is the truth and God's Word is the source of our truth, the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible, the eternal, never changing Word of God. We took on questions like, does God exist? And if so, what he is like? And yes, he exists. And he is not sedentary. He's not sitting on his hands. He is sovereign. He is ruling and reigning. And he is guiding. He is controlling all things. We looked at the question last week, how did we get here? And we looked at the narrative of creation and saw that we live in a word-based universe, that God spoke all things into existence. And this morning, we want to take on the question, what is wrong with the world? And everybody's got an answer to that question, depending on their worldview. For example, the moral therapeutic deist, kind of the popular religious uh worldview that we have in our country today would say, well, what's wrong with the world is people just aren't happy enough. What's wrong with the world is anything that keeps me from feeling optimally happy or optimally safe. And so I want to pursue that. The, the Marxist worldview would say what's wrong with the world is injustice and oppression the secular humanists, the naturalists may say what's wrong with the world is we have global problems that science just hasn't figured out yet. Human reason hasn't figured out yet, like, like climate crisis, for example. But given enough time, we'll figure that out and we'll save the world. And, and here's the deal. Listen, I'm, I'm not saying that some of those things aren't issues, but I am saying today those things aren't the root issue. I, I'm saying those are symptoms What I want to say to you today is that the problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so we want to look to God's word today to give us an answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? About a month ago, my family and I stopped off at this little church on the way to our vacation. Uh, This is in South Bibb County, AKA God's country. And just off of Highway 82 sits this little church and you see me and Two of our children there, our youngest two children, Isaiah and Kalia. And the reason we stopped there is not a tourist attraction probably for anybody but me. And here's the reason we stopped there that day. On December 7th, 1941, my great-grandfather, Grover Cleveland Frederick, how about that for a name? Grover Cleveland Frederick, he was a guest preacher at that church that day. His children were with him, one of which was my grandfather, who on that day in December 7th, 1941 was 16 years old. And so old GC Frederick, he brought the gospel to active Bible Methodist church that day. And then after church, I don't know, apparently y'all don't know this, but there's a rule that y'all continue to break that after church, you're supposed to invite the pastor and his family over for lunch. (laughs) Bunch of losers. (laughs) Well, they invited um, the Frederick family over for lunch that day. And My grandfather, as I heard him tell the story, the children were out in the yard that Sunday afternoon and they were playing when the news came across the radio that Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor earlier that day. And not long on the heels of that announcement, President Roosevelt declared war on Japan. Now, here's what we need to understand. When President Roosevelt declared war on Japan, it wasn't his war. On Japan. It was every American's war on Japan. Every Japanese in that moment was an enemy to every American at that moment. Hirohito's act of war was considered an act of war from the entire nation of Japan. And President Roosevelt's declaration of war was considered a declaration of war from every citizen. In the United States, Emperor Hirohito and President Roosevelt were what you could call the representative heads of their nations. The theological term for that is they were the federal heads of their nations. They represented all of their people. See, when you have a federal headship, you have a relationship that's like this. You have one individual who serves to represent the larger group. And whatever they do as the representative, their actions, their choices, their decisions are imputed then to the people that they represent. For example, modern history now, Ukraine. I don't know many of us are praying for that situation there. Ukraine is in, a, is in a mess today because the federal head, the representative head of Russia, he made a decision. And his decision, his choice, was then carried into everybody that he represents. It was imputed into everybody that he represents. Suddenly, every Russian, because of the decision their representative made, is at war with every Ukrainian person. And then the president of Ukraine made his decision how to respond to that, and his response then determined what would happen to the Ukrainian people. Now, his decision is imputed to them. This is how nations and kingdoms find themselves at war with each other. Now, I want to just soapbox this thing for a minute and and say this, despite this petty and ridiculous not my president garbage that I hear, no matter who happens to be in the Oval Office, the fact is whoever is in the Oval Office is our president. And, And I remind you as children of God, we're called to pray for them, regardless of who they may be. It doesn't matter if you like them or not. It doesn't matter if you voted for them or not. They are the president of the United States of America, the country in which probably most of us are citizens in today. Like it or not, they are our representative head. They bear the federal headship over us. If a hostile country invades our country today, they're not gonna line us up at the firing line based upon who we voted for. They're going to line us up on the firing line because you and I live under the representative headship of the president of the United States. Listen, when a war gets declared, identity politics are going to be lost on our enemy. They don't care a thing about that. It's not going to matter to them if you're a black American. It's not going to matter to them if you're a white American. It's not gonna matter to them if you voted for Republican or or Democrat. Your affinity group is not gonna matter in a time of war. You may wanna write this down, it's not on the notes, I just thought this is pretty important, you ought to write it down. When kingdoms collide, when kingdoms collide, you are only identified by whose federal headship you are under. When kingdoms collide, you are only identified by whose representative headship you are under. If you don't understand that, then you need to ask some of our military personnel because they get that, they understand that they serve this person that they represent. He is their representative head, their federal head. Now listen, here's what you need to know. You may be wondering, is this, are we doing politics today? No, I'm answering the question, what's wrong with the world? And some of you may say, politics, <laughs> that's what's wrong with it. But no, that has its issues, but there's a greater problem. Long before there were federal heads in the forms of emperors and presidents over nations, you may not know this, but the entire human race, and by the way, There only is one race, the human race. There's various levels of pigmentation in our skin. We may come from different parts of the world, but there's God and one race of people called the human race. And there was one global king over the entire human race, one global king that ruled over the entire earth. And he was unique in this sense. He was not only the king of the earth, But he was also the biological father of every human being that would ever inhabit planet Earth. Yes, you were sitting next to your brothers and sisters. We come from the same garden. And when God hit reset with the flood, our folks got off the same boat. All right. Now, this earthly king, his name is Adam. He's the first man. He's the first representative head of planet Earth, the first federal representative of the entire human race that came from him. What this means is as our representative, as our federal head, whatever he does is going to be charged to us. Whatever he does is going to be imputed or passed down to everybody in his kingdom because he, Adam, is the representative of the human race. As Adam goes, so we all go. If Adam stands, we stand. If Adam falls, we fall. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't like this federal headship stuff. I don't like representative headship stuff. I wanna stand on my own. I wanna represent myself. Well, if that's your attitude today, you're not gonna like where this sermon's going because it's going to Jesus. And Jesus came to give us new representative headship. Now, don't be so foolish to think that you want to stand before God one day on Judgment Day and represent yourself. Because the Bible says we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Trust me, you're going to need a much better representative before Almighty Holy God on Judgment Day than you. I promise you that. Some will object and say that we shouldn't be held responsible for Adam's choices. We are not held responsible for Adam's choices. But we are affected by Adam's choices. My grandfather wasn't responsible for FDR's choice on that day. But he was affected. Two Purple Hearts and 17 days as a prisoner of war in the Philippines. He was affected by the decision of somebody else. We're not responsible for what Adam did, but we are affected. We are affected by Adam's sin, not only because he's our representative head, not only because he's the federal head, but because Adam is also our ancient biological father. And when he sinned, when he fell, this sin disease was passed on to all of his descendants. Now let me just try to give you an overview of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. We looked at the, the, the days of creation last week as we talked about that. Today we want to answer this question, what is wrong with the world? You get to day 6 and God picks up dirt and he blows into it and he creates Adam, right? And then he puts him in a sleep and he pulls out a rib and he creates woman. So now you've got man and woman. And then in Genesis 2 something amazing happens. Watch this. In Genesis 2, the king of heaven forms a covenant with the new king of the earth. And we see this in in Genesis chapter 2. This is the first covenant that God makes with a human being. It's not the last. God's going to make a number of covenants with human beings, but this is the first one. Now let me explain what a covenant is. And the best way I can explain what a covenant is, is to tell you what it's not. A covenant is not a contract. In a contract, you got two people and they're coming together because each of them is after something that benefits themselves. It's It's, self-interest. They're looking to make a mutually advantageous exchange between each other. That's all it is. For example, I go to the bank. I need a loan because I got a house I want to buy. I can't buy it without the bank. So there's something I stand to gain from that, right? And they stand to gain something too because they're gonna give me that money, but I'm gonna pay interest on that money so that their business can continue to grow. I'm not emotionally invested in that bank. I don't really care about that bank. They don't care about me. I'm in it to get my house. They're in it to get my interest money, right? That's all it is. Contracts are about self-interest. What do you want? What do you want? Well, how can I help you? How can I help you? Okay. I can benefit there with that. And you can benefit with this so we can enter into this contract. That's not what a covenant is. Covenants are about relationships. See contracts are about you and me. A covenant is about us. The relationships. Here's another example. A prenuptial agreement is a contract. I'm looking out for me, you look out for you. That's your stuff, this is my stuff. That's a contract. Marriage is a covenant. In marriage, there is no more my stuff, your stuff. It's our stuff. We had a beautiful wedding right here last night. One of our church members, he married a girl whose heritage is from Mexico, and they wanted me to do all these Mexican traditions in the wedding last night, and it was beautiful. Biblically based. And the first one that happened, this is in my notes. I didn't plan to share this. But the first one in my notes is that a couple came up and they had, I don't remember, I was so focused on not messing up. I don't even really know what they had. But I think it was a box and it had coins in it. And they gave these coins to the groom and then he gave them to his bride and then she gave them back to her to symbolize that just as God was making them one, so also were their finances going to be one. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. Not a contract. Contract is, this is you, this is me. A covenant is, this is us. God doesn't enter into contracts with people. You know why? Because God stands to gain nothing. You can't bring anything to the bargaining table that God doesn't already have. You can't bring anything to the table to form a contract with God to make him more Godlike. You, you can't increase his kingship You can't make him any richer, any stronger, more powerful. We've got nothing to bring to the table. We come before him because he's offering us a covenant. He wants a relationship. Wants is a key word. He doesn't need it. Some people walk around thinking, God needs me. God was lonely, so God made people. God's never been lonely. There's no deficiency in the character of God. He needs nothing. He is perfect and complete and whole in and of himself, you and I can't even begin to fathom the wholeness of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that we bring to the table that he goes, I need that. No, out of his kindness, out of his grace, he says, I want you to know me. I want you to live with me. I want you to be at peace with me. I want you to walk with me. So God forms covenants with people. I'm in a covenant with God right now in this moment. Anybody else happen to be in a covenant with God right now in this moment? Some of you are like, I don't know. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But, but here's what I do with you guys, with my church family so often, to remind myself of the covenant that I'm in with God. We have this thing that we call the Lord's Supper. And we take this prepackaged nasty piece of bread. I hate you, COVID. You messed up the Lord's Supper around here. And it symbolizes that his body was broken and his blood was shed because God, out of his kindness and grace, wanted me to know him, to live with him, and to walk with him. So in Genesis 2, God makes a covenant with the first man, the king of the earth, Adam. Here's the king of heaven coming down to make a covenant with Adam, the king of the earth, this relational covenant. We see the covenant in Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 15. The Lord took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. I've created all this, Adam, and it's all yours. This is your kingdom. You're over all this, only one thing. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God's covenantal agreement with Adam. God graciously gives Adam all of creation. He says only this one tree. The fruit on that tree is off limits. The day you eat of that tree, you go from life to death. And we don't know just how long that covenant stood in place. But I don't think it took very long until that tragic day came that Adam made his fateful decision and he broke that covenant that God had so graciously made with him. We see this in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. On that day, in that garden, King Adam's choice was far bigger than simply deciding what do I want as a snack. He made a choice. The choice before him was you can either keep this covenant that you have with God, or you can break it. As the federal head of all creation, the representative head of all creation. Adam has this choice to make. Stand with the creator in this covenant or sever the kingdom of earth from its creator. And Adam, as you know, he chose to break that covenant with God and he severed his earthly kingdom from its creator and severed all who would be inhabitants of that creation from their creator. Satan had lured Adam into committing an act of war against God, and that is the day that lives in infamy. The gracious bond between heaven and earth was severed that day, was broken that day, and the earth wasted no time filling the consequences of that. Chapter three, verse seven says "And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That had been a moment that they looked forward to every day, every evening. God shows up and we take a walk, but they weren't excited about the sound of the Lord God in the garden on this day. The Bible says that the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, to the man, men, to the man. He's responsible. He's the representative head, not only of the kingdom of the earth, but he's the representative head of his family. Men, not everything that's going wrong at home is your fault, but men, it is your responsibility This is the way God has designed it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But that's the way it is. God's calling out to the man. And he said, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. Never been afraid before. But I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Now, now, listen, this is no surprise to God. God just has a way, doesn't he? of Just asking us the questions we would rather he not ask. He already knows this. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam does this. <laughs> Classy. So suddenly we have accusations. Suddenly, we have broken trust. Suddenly, we have suspicion. Human relationships, the most fundamental thing on planet earth, are now spiraling out of control. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so God then curses the serpent. Listen, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then God curses the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then God curses the king of the earth and his kingdom. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the, of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You weren't going to return to the ground, but now you're going to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you're dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what's wrong with the world today. This is the root of all the other wrongs and ills that exist in the world today, it is sin. It started with King Adam and his act of war, his breaking of the covenant with God. King Adam's one act drug all of creation into this cosmic conflict. Just as Emperor Hirohito's one act on December 7th, 1941, affected so many. So Adam's one act drug all of creation into this place of enmity with God. Yeah, Eve ate it first, but the responsibility fell on the man. It fell on Adam. He was the representative head of all of creation, our original king, and our biological dad. He willingly chose to break away from our Creator and attempt to rule the earth without Him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all Have sinned. Here's what Paul just said. Our representative head, Adam, he brought this contagion called sin into all of the earth. And the earth and all the inhabitants of it have suffered and died ever since. Here's the deal Adam was first. He was the first to be created, he was the first man. He was the first to have a job, he was the first to have a wife, he was the first to walk with God. He was the first to sin against God, but Adam was the first to hear the good news of the gospel. Now the question I'm supposed to be answering today is what is wrong with the world? I could not bring myself to stand here 40 minutes and tell you what's wrong with the world without telling you the solution, which is next week's question. But we'll do that one twice, okay? Adam was the first to hear the good news of the gospel. In the midst of the curses that God is speaking in Genesis chapter 3, God points in sort of a mysterious way to some good news. In the midst of all the spiritual bombs that are exploding in Genesis chapter 3, God points to some good news good news. There's a promise from God in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion. Proto meaning first, like a prototype. Evangelion meaning good news. This is the first good news in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It's kind of mentioned in this mysterious sort of way. God's in the middle of cursing the serpent, turning him into old Mr. No-shoulders, right? And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now this is interesting. Adam is the representative head. He has the federal headship over the earth and over his family. His headship is gonna be passed to his sons, to their sons and to their sons. They will represent their families and so on and so on. But God is saying something here in verse 15, not about Adam's offspring. Here, he's talking about her offspring. He's talking about the offspring of Eve. God is shifting here. Watch this. He's shifting the attention away. While he's cursing the serpent, he shifts the attention away from the paternal line of the inhabitants of the kingdom of earth to the maternal line of the inhabitants of the kingdom of earth. God goes on to say to the serpent that there is gonna be this one who is going to come from this woman. There's no mention of an earthly father. And he says of this one who has no mention of an earthly father, he's gonna bruise your head. That's lethal. You're gonna bruise his heel, that's not lethal. The promise is that a person is going to come and he's going to deal finally, fully, completely with this serpent. And this person who is going to come is not going to have Adam as his biological father. He will not be the son of a human father. What this means is he will not be under the representative headship of Adam. Therefore, he will not be under the curse of sin. Adam will not have represented him. This one would come, not born under the curse, like all the rest of humanity. But how could that happen? How could a human being come into this world born from a woman, but not under the sonship of Adam, not under the representation of Adam without an earthly father? Well, about a thousand years BC, a prophet by the name of Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call him Emmanuel. That is God with us. Listen, the virgin birth is not just a cool miracle at Christmas time to give us really warm, fuzzy songs to sing at Christmas time. The virgin birth is necessary. A person not under the curse of sin is the only person that could set you and I free from the curse of sin. If Jesus came through the representative headship of Adam, then he would be under the curse of sin and he would be no savior to us. He would be represented by Adam just like me and you are represented by Adam. But Jesus wasn't represented by Adam. He had no biological father. He's the only human being that has ever lived on planet Earth that did not have Adam as his biological father. He's the only human being that ever walked on planet Earth that was outside of the representative headship of Adam. Jesus was born a free man to set you and I free from the slavery of being in sin and to sin's curse. He came to set us free. He came into the world to be the new and the better Adam. He came to provide you and I with representation before God that Adam failed us in and that we have failed ourselves in. That's why Jesus came. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See right now, every person in this room, you don't get to represent yourself before God. You don't. It's his world. He created it. It's his rules. Today, you're either represented by Adam or you're represented by Jesus. That proto-evangelion in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, for so long, that must have been a mystery to people, Right? Who's coming from this woman? And how could somebody come from her but not from him? How in the world could that be? What a mystery that must have been. We sing a song around here that has that line that says, Come behold the wondrous mystery. That's what's playing right now in the background. That means it was a mystery. How from Eve could come a person that would break the curse of sin off of us and give us a relationship and representation now with God It's not a mystery anymore though, is it? Now we know we can behold it. We can see it because a new King of the earth has come. He's appeared like the light of a new day. He is the one that all of heaven sang his praises. And yet he stepped out of heaven and he robed himself, not in robes of royalty. He robed himself in human flesh. He entered the womb of a virgin young girl. He put on flesh and became a man. And this is good news for us because we were lost in sin and darkness represented by Adam. And we could not make ourselves right with God. So God came to make himself available to us. He humbled himself and became one of us to save us and to ransom us from the curse of sin. Listen, there is no gospel. There is no good news without the incarnation of Jesus. That means there is no good news if Jesus had not become a man. There is no gospel. There is no good news if Jesus was not both fully God and fully man at the same time. There is no gospel if Jesus had not been born of a virgin. And that's what the first verse of this song is all about. So as you sit, would you just sing with us and lock your heart and mind into the truth of the gospel you're singing. Come,
1: Come. behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the theme of heaven's praises Robed in frail you On flesh to us. Listen,
0: there is no gospel if Jesus had not become a man, but there is no gospel if he had fallen like Adam fell. There is no gospel if he had sinned, but he did not sin. Contrast him with the first Adam who had everything, and yet he sinned. With Jesus, who had nothing, not even a pillow on which to lay his head, and yet he remained perfect and without sin. The spotless Lamb of God, no fault, no sin found in him. Jesus is better than Adam. You get to pick who represents you, but I'm telling you, Jesus is better than Adam. He is far better than Adam. Adam brought the curse of sin. Jesus broke the curse of sin. Adam said, don't blame me, blame my bride. Jesus said, don't blame my bride, blame me. In the garden, Adam said, not your will, but my will be done. And in another garden, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Perfect and sinless. Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly, scored a 100, and offers that score to us by grace. He was not from Adam. Not under the curse of sin, he was from God. No other man with a million lifetimes could have ever lived the life, the sinless, perfect, righteous life that Jesus lived. And by grace through faith, we can live in him and not in Adam anymore. See, the gospel's good news because Jesus became a man and he lived a perfect, sinless, unfallen life. Let's sing that, verse
1: 2. Come behold the wondrous mystery He the perfect Son of Man In His living, in His suffering Never trace nor stain of sin See the true and the great and sure fulfillment of the law in Him we stand.
0: See, it's only good news if Jesus came as a man not under the curse of sin, lived a perfect sinless life. But it's only good news because He also died in our place at the cross. It's not enough to come as a person and live a perfect life. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus goes to the cross in our place to reconcile us to God, to give us fellowship with God, to restore us to God. The penalty of sin is death. And so Jesus suffered and died. His body was broken, his blood was shed. In the garden, God had pointed Adam away from a tree, but in another garden, God pointed Jesus to a tree there he suffered and died that he might represent you and me before god the perfect sacrifice the lamb of god through the lamb of god another covenant a new covenant not of works but of the finished work of jesus was formed that's why from the cross he declared it is finished you can't add anything to this covenant you can't keep this covenant It's unconditional, it is by God's grace alone that we enter into this covenant. The gospel's only good news for us if Jesus was born of a virgin, took on human flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died on the cross to save us from our sins. Verse
1: three, let's sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold.
0: The message of the gospel ends with Jesus dying. We have no gospel. We have no good news. If Jesus is in a tomb, then you and I are still in our sin. If Jesus is still dead today, that means that sin and death are still ruling and reigning over us. It means that the curse of sin has not been broken. A dead savior cannot save. A living kingdom must have a living king. See, the gospel is only good news. If God himself came, put on flesh, born of a virgin, not under the curse of sin, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross in our place, and proved that the curse of sin and death was broken by rising from the dead. And that's precisely what he did. Verse 4.
1: Come behold the wondrous mystery Slain by death, the God of life but no grave could restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power. If you're in Adam,
0: I'm not talking to you. If you're in Christ, you will be resurrected as he was. We have that hope. We have that confidence today. I pray that you're in Jesus today and not in Adam. Adam's a dead end. Jesus leads to life everlasting. If you've never given him your life, Receive the free gift of salvation that he offers to you. He's broke the curse and the power of sin and death. That's a gift. All you got to do is receive that. If you've never received that in just a moment, I'll be standing right here and I would love to just help you trust Jesus today to save you. But for now, you're all going to proclaim the gospel with your lips. Everybody stand and let's take it from the top.